Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Finest Hours, the show where we share amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. I'm Braden Cromar, joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our stunning and brave executive producer, Skylar Williams. Thanks for having us. It's been two weeks. Again. <laughs> <laughs> that it has. Is there anything new or noteworthy going on in your worlds that you would like to share? Last time we talked about Australia beating the USA in basketball. Well, we do have some exciting news. We do have international listeners from the United Kingdom, Australia, Italy, Ireland, and Brazil. So hi to our international listeners. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we want to hear from you. We'll get more to that at the end. But as promised in our previous episode, we have prepared a special three-parter for you today. Wonder Women, Amazing Women of History. Today we are sharing the stories of three women who have had a profound impact on the lives around them. A sculptor, a scientist, and an iconoclast. So the reason why we chose to do this today was because uh, we realized that we hadn't had any stories about women yet. And I'd been chewed out by a coworker telling me that she really wanted us to produce a episode with women. So I also mentioned that as well. uh, And Skylar did too. Yes. So our first story takes place in the trenches of World War I between 1914 and 1918. The First World War saw some of the most brutal combat in the history of warfare. After the turn of the century, a lot of technical advancements were made. Uh, airplanes and tanks, machine guns, improved artillery, flamethrowers, chemical weapons. These were all newer advancements that were being introduced into warfare. But a lot of soldiers were still being outfitted with some truly bizarre, almost medieval type weapons and equipment. They're outfitted with uh, gauntlet daggers, which are uh, like this Hulk hand made out of steel with a spike on the end of it for trench raids, Uh, trench raiding clubs, which were spiked clubs, aerial darts, which would be dropped from an airplane onto enemy lines, uh, chain mail, and a lot of other more medieval type weapons. So a lot of nations went into war with an old school mentality. The modern military strategy had not evolved as fast as the weaponry had. So the resulting casualties from the war were pretty extreme. The irony of World War I was that a lot of nations were rushing to modernize their cities and their militaries, but they're still outfitting soldiers with some very outdated weaponry and equipment. The weapons most associated with World War I, artillery and poison gas, were uh, resulted in some of the most severe casualties of the war. In an effort to avoid being outflanked by the enemy, the troops on the Western Front began scrambling to expand their lines. So they dug trenches and, and developed a system of trenches that spanned across the continent. So they were trench- all interconnected. They, it was a pretty vastly connected network. I mean, they probably weren't all interconnected, but I mean, we're talking miles and miles of trenches sp- spreading across the the war front. 
So in trench warfare, one side would pummel the other with hundreds of thousands of artillery shells, sometimes for days at a time. And when it was silent, they'd then charge across the no man's land in the middle to the opposing trench and try to overtake them. And the defending trench would then open fire with machine guns on the men charging the lines. Uh, in an effort to avoid uh, force the enemy out of the trenches, both the Allied and Central Powers developed poisonous gas weapons that they could deploy on the enemy. Thousands of men would die and only gain small portions of land at a time. A few what meters. What kind of day. gas were they developing? So they developed a few different gases. Uh, chlorine and mustard gas are probably the most um, uh, recognized of the war. The French developed tear gas, but it wasn't particularly effective. And there's another gas, I think called phosgene gas and phosgene gas was a, a slow killer. So it was odorless. So that meant it was hard to detect, but it didn't have an immediate effect. It would take days to uh, affect the soldiers. Uh, chlorine and mustard gas were a little bit more immediate, but they're pretty easy to detect. Mustard gas developed by the Germans was a very heavy gas and it would linger in the trenches for like years almost. There are still traces, there are still traces of it years after the war. So it's a very heavy gas that would sit low in the trench and would force soldiers out of the trench. But they they all had a lot of um horrible effects on the soldiers. So to share a story of the effects and the horrors of the poison gas. Um, there was a battle that was taking place in Poland between the Germans and the uh, Russians. German troops were attacking a heavily fortified fortress, uh, Osovec Fortress. 7,000 German troops deployed poisonous gas on the fortress. Most of the Russians died because they didn't have gas masks, but as the German troops advanced on the fortress, the remainder of the Russian troops bayonet charged the Germans. The Russian soldiers were had their faces wrapped in blood-stained rags as they coughed out blood and pieces of their lungs. Their face had been so badly burned by the gas attacks that their flesh had begun to dissolve. The sight was so frightening to the German soldiers that they panicked and ran back towards their defenses, despite massively outnumbering the Russians. Uh, many got caught in their own barbed wire traps, and the Russians then opened fire on the Germans and were able to hold on to the fort for a while longer. This attack was called the Attack of the Dead Men. That's interesting. Just to like put perspective on that, I think we've all seen movies of World War One, World War Two, and so you can kind of get an idea of what this really looked like. This was a, a, a deadly time to be alive. It probably was pretty frightening to see what, what gas had done to these men. It had major psychological effects on the soldiers too. It was by far the most feared weapon of the, of the war. Uh, and the soldiers in the Western Front were also experiencing the same symptoms. Um, between the millions of the artillery rounds that were dropped and the poison gas attacks, millions of soldiers were wounded or killed in the First World War. Uh, and in trench warfare, so the trenches do a really good job of protecting your body, but they leave your head very exposed because that's the only part of you that you're peeking over the trenches to attack. So pull your head up over the trench and all of a sudden there's artillery shells blasting in your face. 
So the disfigured veterans of the war referred to as the most unfortunate victims of the war. Soldiers who returned home with facial injuries had little options for treatment because plastic surgery was still in its infancy and rarely resulted in a successful restoration of their face. Uh, and a lot of men that were disfigured were falling victim to fates like suicide, alcoholism. They would return home and they'd get divorced. Their children would run from them in terror. And the, the face is really the physical domain of human identity, emotion, uh, communication, and attraction. So men were being treated um, for their injuries and they had to have mirrors removed from the hospitals because they would see their face and they would go into shock and collapse in terror. Think about nowadays when we have military vets come home and they're amputees, the technology between World War I and now has improved vastly, but they still have a hard time coping with it. Their loved ones oftentimes still have a hard time coping with it. Um, and so you could, you could imagine that it was, it was probably a, a really tough and hard time for these military vets when they came home and they were injured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And plastic surgery has advanced massively. It's still not perfect, but um, you know, we have a, we have more, options for treatment. Anna Coleman Ladd, the subject of our story, she's quoted by saying, people get used to seeing men with arms and legs missing, but they never get used to seeing an abnormal. Anna Coleman Ladd was an American sculptor. She was born in Pennsylvania and had studied sculpting in Paris. In 1917, she moved back to Paris with her husband, Dr. Maynard Ladd, who was appointed to direct the Children's Bureau of the American Red Cross in Toll. She learned of the work of a British sculptor, Francis Derwent Wood, um, the work that he was doing in London, creating masks for disfigured soldiers. And uh, it was then that she founded the American Red Cross Studio for Portrait Masks in Paris. Uh, She had recognized the void that, you know, the plastic surgeons weren't able to help all of these men, and she wanted to assist So it was there that she began to provide making custom masks for disfigured veterans of World War I. She produced masks by taking a mold of the soldier's face. They would then sculpt the attachments that would restore the face. And from these attachments, they would create a paper-thin copper plate uh, that they would fit over the soldier's face. Each plate would then be hand-painted to match the soldier's skin tone, and they would do this as they were wearing them. Eyebrows and mustaches were attached using real hair. The mask would often be fitted with glasses that would be used as support to keep the mask on the soldier's face. Uh, Each mask took about one month to take. So there are a lot of really cool photos of these masks, and we'll post them to our our social page on our Instagram, Finest Hours Podcast. So go and check it out and then have a look at them because they're really, they're really interesting. One particular soldier was so depressed that he waited two years to return home to his family because he didn't want his mother to see how badly he had been disfigured. Of all his face, he only had one eye left. And after 50 operations, he came to Anna to have a mask made. And it was only then that he had returned home. So you say that he only had one eye left. Are you talking about all the other features on his face as a nose? Completely mangled. 
rough. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the injuries that men were sustaining were in the eye area, the nose, and the mouth. So a lot of the masks were created to restore the lower half of their faces. Were the masks made off of what their face like looked like? So like the other side, or were she given like a picture and said, "This is what I used to look like." Can you make it like this? Do we know anything about that? Well, it would depend on how badly they were injured. A lot of men would have things like inflammation on the side of their faces and scar tissue that really kind of blew up their their faces and made their faces really large. So it was hard to fully restore them in some cases, but they would provide her with photos and she would try to restore it to their previous uh, appearance. It would depend on what they were working with. So like this guy was probably just like, just give me a face. Yeah. Like a full, a full mask. Yeah. That'd be hard, man. <laughs> yeah. So the studio was open for two years. She had produced 185 masks. It closed in 1920 due to lack of funds. Two years is 24 months and each mask takes a month to make. So she, do you yeah. know how large her operation was? I don't. She had several assistants helping her. I don't know how large her operation was, though. But you'll see some of the photos in her studio, and you'll see several different uh, sculptors assisting with this this project. Cool. So there's not a whole lot known about Anna Coleman Lash. She lived a pretty quiet life. After the studio closed in Paris, she had moved back to the northeastern United States and resumed work as a sculptor. With 185 masks made, it might not seem a lot considering the casualties um, that occurred in World War I, but what Anna Coleman Ladd did was give 185 men the ability just to feel normal again and uh, blend back into society and not feel so isolated. That's seven masks per month for the two years when once again, like Hayden mentioned, it took a month to create that mask. So I would say she literally did all that she could to, to help as many people as possible. So we see Anna Coleman Ladd's finest hour was helping men to feel normal again. And her finest hour consisted of intense work over the period of two years to help restore people from the devastating effects of World War One. We'll move on to our second uh, woman of the day, and her name is Maria Goppert Mayer. And so she was actually born in 1906 as an only child. She was the seventh generation of university professors. So her father uh, worked as a university professor at the university that she would eventually attend, and he uh, was a professor of pediatrics. Seventh generation of professors. That's pretty crazy. How long was a generation? Did we decide like 25 years? <laughs> Seventh generation means Just that 20. six ancestors did were professors. Like that's crazy. I can't even yeah. imagine. That is insane. That's a smart family. Yeah. Now, Maria had the wonderful opportunity to eventually attend the university where her father taught. Um, because her family was so engrossed in academics and the academic world, uh, she was graced with many wonderful teachers. So at one point, uh, while she was a teenager, the school that she was attending, it was a private school, uh, was shut down. And 
nobody was getting paid, but the teachers were still coming to educate the children because they knew that that was paramount. Um, Oh, so it wasn't a massive snow day? It was not a massive snow day, but they all showed up. So I think it's kind of funny how snow days and things like that were like dying to get out of school today. Um, But education was really important to both the professors and all the teachers and the students. So I think that's one thing that is really interesting about that generation. This was also happening in Germany to give you an idea of where this was occurring. Okay. Mm. And so the, her teachers were helping to prepare her for a university entrance exam. Uh, normally that exam was taken at 18 years old and she took it at 17 years old. So she took it one year early. Um, among her classmates that took it at the same time as her, there were three other girls and there were over 30 boys that took that entrance exam at the same time. And the pass rate was not great. Uh, one boy uh, passed the exam, but all four of the girls that took the exam passed. So I think that's saying something. Nice. And so all of these people that, well, these five people that were then entering the university were looking into mathematics because it was well known that the mathematics field was lacking in teachers. There was a shortage. And so it basically guaranteed you a job if you uh, got a degree in mathematics. So that's the direction that most of them took. But Maria was more interested in physics. And so as she worked on her doctorate, three of the people that reviewed her work um, were later recognized as Nobel laureates. And so she continued to be surrounded by people um, that were really at the top of their class. Um, And so she eventually met her husband who was one of the assistants uh, of one of her mentors. And so he was an American with the last name Mayer. So Maria Goppert became Maria Goppert Mayer when they married and they moved to America, the United States. Um, And at this time, her husband was offered a position at Johns Hopkins university and he was an assistant professor of chemistry Uh, John Hopkins and all of the other universities at the time, this was indicative of the time period, had strict rules about nepotism. And so they would not hire Maria as a professor, and they didn't want her as a member of the faculty. Previously, those rules were applied to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, a family-run university, that there was some diversification in there. But what it ended up doing was just forcing women out. Uh, So she took an unpaid position at the university to gain access to some of their resources, but she was not being paid and she was not recognized as a member of the faculty. And so this was in the early 1930s. So she was born in 1906 and less than 30 years later uh, has a doctorate and has moved to America. A few years later, her husband is actually fired from the university Uh, Many people believe that it was due to the fact that his uh, wife was grossly involved in his own work. Uh, Many of his students were saying that uh, his lectures uh, contained strong undertones of modern physics. And so they knew that uh, he was strongly influenced by her work, and that worried them. Uh, Because he was 
he he was a chemist, right? He's a chemist, yes. And, and she was doing physics. Yep. And so these modern physics and uh, theory was influencing his lectures, while chemistry and physic chemistry and physics are really intertwined. Um, at the time, they noticed that the intertwining was coming from his wife's work. And so that really bothered them. For sure. I can understand that. But also at the same time, if it, if it's working, you know, like if it's making sense, if it's right, then it shouldn't have been that big of a deal. But I, I'm not in that situation. So I probably would have been upset too. But now looking back at it, it's like, Oh, like, was it really that big of a deal? You know, maybe they just didn't like him as a professor and they were just looking for any way to get rid of the harder class. <laughs> Wouldn't you do that too? Skyler? I would. Yes. I would be all for that. <laughs> <laughs> An easy way out. Yes. <laughs> so he assigned a big term project. And so all of his students rose up in a terrible tirade against him. Just kidding. That's not true. But it is interesting to note that a lot of the discoveries that were being made were theoretical and there at the time was no way to prove some of these things. And so uh, Maria actually had made some discoveries in the 1930s. She wrote a big paper in 1935 about beta decay. Um, And some of her theories related to photons weren't able to be proved until the creation of the laser. So she actually has some stuff named after her because they found out later that it was right once there was technology to prove it. What is beta decay? Beta decay. So dealing with radiation, radioactive elements decay over time. And so there are two different types of decay, alpha decay and beta decay. Ah, so they're like half-lives. Look into that because that's about all I know on that. But she was not exactly at the forefront. Radiation was discovered in 1905 uh, by... Marie Curie, a French scientist and physicist. And it would forever change our world. Oh, yes. Big time. And so some of those changes to the world were directly affecting Maria. So after that issue with her husband's employment, they moved to Columbia University, where she would later hop on onto the Manhattan Project. So radiation... Um, radioactive isotopes, all of that greatly affected what she was doing in her work. And so her job was to look into how to split isotopes in the Manhattan Project. Eventually... One of the the many, what was it? 55,000 people in the Manhattan Project. So she was one of them. And so it was was a massive project. And she was unpaid for it? Yeah, and so at this point she had still not received a paid position. So she was working part-time. I thought it was interesting that, you know, this incredibly intelligent woman that is at the forefront of theoretical physics is going unpaid. And so throughout all of this time, she was more interested and more passionate about the learning and the discoveries than she was about the money, which I think is really saying something. And I, I would attribute that to her upbringing and being surrounded by, um, people that were so passionate about what they were doing. It probably helps that her her husband's probably getting paid pretty well too. You would hope so. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. She's gone what her whole life now. 
not working. Well, not working. I mean, working, working harder than she for not getting paid money. for, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty, that is something. Um, later on, she got into nuclear physics. And so this was her first paid position in Chicago after World War II, uh, after the Manhattan Project was completed. She was hired on as a nuclear physicist, which was not at all her specialty. So I also found that was very interesting that uh, the thing that she was at the forefront of, she wasn't being paid for. And then they put her into something that she's not a specialist in and they're like, oh, here, have all the money. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that is definitely how the world works. <laughs> got a race, got a race to uh, develop that nuclear arsenal. Yeah, and so she we was at thing. the University of Chicago studying there. Um, and she developed a new theory about the shells of elect or the shells of atoms and and atomic structure. And so if you've taken a chemistry class or a physics class, you may see it in both of them where they're talking about elements. Uh, they have an outermost shell, which is filled with valence electrons. And so she was the one that proposed this. She was one of the first. And so at the same time, this is also pretty interesting, there were three additional German scientists that were living in Germany that uh, were studying the same problem. And so she actually had her proposal submitted um, first for review. And uh, oddly enough, hers was the last one to finish the review. And so the other scientists' reviews came out and were published first. Um, but they knew the contemporary, um, they had a contemporary in the U.S. that had published something or that had submitted something to review prior to them. And so they began collaborating with her and they would actually end up, um, three of those four would actually become Nobel laureates in 1963 um, for their uh, contributions to the study of physics. And so this was the second woman to receive a Nobel Prize in physics. The first one being Madame Curie that uh, discovered radiation and she was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1905. And we just barely had the third woman to receive the Nobel Prize in physics. Her name is Donna Strickland and she received it in 2018. So we've seen about 50-year gaps between uh, women physicists receiving Nobel Prizes, and I thought that that was kind of interesting. 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 <laughs> oh, man. That sounded great. Do you know how long, how long have they been doing the Nobel Prize in physics? Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded 112 times to 212 unique Nobel laureates between 1901 and 2018. So there is no 2019 prize yet. So Marie Curie, Madame Curie was almost one of the first people to, to get that physics prize. Yep. And she received it in conjunction with her husband. They actually received a Nobel Prize together. What's also interesting is Madame Curie's daughter received a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And so it's like, dang, another smart family. That's crazy. It's cool to see how people in history like intertwines with everything. And so 
when we share stories, you can see like, oh, like from this previous story that we shared, this information kind of gathers with this one. And you can just see how, how things kind of roll out and play out in the history of the world. Maria Mayer's Finest Hour came as she won the Nobel Prize in 1963. And that's when we're going to jump forward three years later to Catherine Schweitzer, Syracuse, New York, 1966. It was a dark December evening. The snow began to flurry wildly as she continued on her six-mile run. Her running coach, Arnie Briggs, who was a 15-time Boston Marathon veteran, once again shared one of his famous Boston stories, but this time it was different. This time, she wanted her own famous story to share with others. She shouted, oh, let's quit talking about Boston Marathon and run the darn thing. And yes, I did make that PG. Her you coach have to. <laughs> oh, yes, our audience if, needs PG. If it's in the Bible, I'll allow it. <laughs> Her coach quickly piped back. No woman can run the Boston Marathon. Why not? I'm running 10 miles a night. Arnie then said the distance was too long for fragile women to run. They continued to fire back and forth when finally Arnie said, if any woman could do it, you could but you would have to prove it to me. If you run the distance in practice, I'd be the first to take you to Boston. So I have a question. Why was she running at night? (laughs) Hayden, we run at night all the time. Yeah. I just want to know, is that more typical of the time? I I have no idea. Honestly, oh, go for it. Runners were like, thought of like super weird strange like anti-social people like it was really weird for people to be like seen on the roads running just for the sake of running during that time run for fun like it was really weird (laughs) running for fun yeah and so she probably wanted to uh run in the dark so no one else could see her um (laughs) with all of that being said Three weeks prior to the Boston Marathon, Catherine and Arnie decided to do a 26-mile run, which is the distance of a marathon. Um, As they came to the end of that run, Catherine feels like it was too easy. So she she suggests that they run another five-mile loop so that she and Arnie could feel more confident about her running in Boston. Um, By the end of that run, Arnie actually starts to turn gray and he passes out cold. Um, And I think that's, that's awesome. Just to show like nice Catherine just ran 31 miles and she feels great. And her coach is the one that passes out. Boom. Roasted. (laughs) Boom. Roasted. Owned. Um, So the next day, Arnie comes to Catherine and says, okay, let's sign up for the marathon. Um, So along with her coach, Arnie, her boyfriend, Tom Miller, who um, was actually a hammer thrower. um, And he was, he was practicing so that he could go to the Olympics to hammer throw. Yeah. I think he's a hammer thrower and I think he played football and he weighed like 240 pounds. Yeah. Big dude. He said, if, a girl can do it. I can do it. And so he decided that he was going to sign up along with her moron. Uh, (laughs) And that's where things go wrong. Um, 
but they sign up. She ends up signing her name KV Schweitzer, which is how she normally signed her name. Um, and she pays the three dollar cash cash entry fee. Three dollars, huh? Which is amazing because you know it's three dollars, and now you have to pay like a hundred and fifty or whatever. Inflation calculator time. Inflation calculator time. Calculate calculation. Which I it's still way cheap, but Boston Marathon wasn't what it is today. Yeah. So it was what year and it was how much? It was nineteen sixty six and it was three dollars to enter. Nineteen sixty six, three dollars. So that is calculate twenty three dollars and seventy six cents today. And the registration fee today for American runners is one hundred and eighty dollars. For international runners, it's two hundred and forty. Interesting. What a ripoff! Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a little bit cheaper than I thought it might be. Way cheaper than I was expecting. I guess the hard part is most people are coming from pretty far away. Yeah, and so they incur a lot of travel costs. Yeah. It's good. It's a good race. Where did I've you say raced. Catherine Schweitzer was from? Oh, yes, this is important. She was a German-born American. That's interesting. And do you so, know where she was training? Like, state? Was she near Boston? Yeah, so it was in Syracuse, New York. Syracuse, New York. Oh, that's right. Yep, you said that at, in the beginning. Yeah, Syracuse University. She was studying journalism. She loved to run. Um, and she would actually train with the Syracuse men's cross-country team. Um, and then finally she got Arnie Briggs to start coaching her. And that's why they were out on a run. She enters the race and the Boston marathon that year was being held on Wednesday, April 19th. And also what's interesting is that that race started at noon. I told you there was something about the time, man. Like, <laughs> they were running at weird times. Yeah, so not this eight o'clock garbage that everybody tries to get us to do. They ran at noon, but it's probably yeah, because it was cold and rainy. Like 6 um, so yeah, it was a cold and rainy day. They started at noon and as they drove down there, they got down there, they started to warm up. And as they were warming up, the men would run past Catherine and they kind of do a double take. They'd be like, Whoa, this is a woman. And they would run up to her and she thought that they'd kind of be like hostile to her, but they were all like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, I'm so glad that a woman is running this race. Can you go and talk to my wife? She would love to run if you could just go and talk to her. And so she was receiving like all this love from the men saying like, Oh, it's great. Like that finally a woman's going to run the Boston marathon. Are you going to run the whole thing? Um, because like her coach, people thought that women were fragile and they couldn't, hold on to that 26 miles but they weren't all like that were they Skyler no they were not and so the race starts and Catherine and her coach and her boyfriend get four miles in and that's when the press truck comes with all of the cameramen on they slowly go past her and then they realize oh this is a woman and just like the other male racers they're ecstatic. They start taking her pictures. Um, they start asking her questions while she's running. 
And she's a little uncomfortable with this, but she keeps running. And that's when all of a sudden this nicely dressed man who is standing in the street looks at her and then swipes at her to get her off of the course. And he actually ends up grabbing her glove and takes it off. And as she, in that crazy moment that she sidesteps him, her glove comes off. She sees that there's a BAA ribbon on his lapel. And she thinks to herself, how did the race director get onto the course? And so now she's freaking out because, okay, the race director just tried to get me off. What's going to happen next? I think it's interesting that all of the runners tend to be happier people and the race director's an uptight, you know, pain in the butt. Oh, totally. And, and, and running will be happier. We'll probably do some more athletes in finest hour and we'll see how the governing bodies of athletics are really just like a huge pain in the butt. Well, and we even experienced this in our running. Oh, totally. Crusty, <laughs> awful people. I think it's because they're out of shape. <laughs> they're jealous. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. so they keep running and then they start to hear the sound of rubber soled shoes behind them. And this starts to really worry them. They're like, oh no, what's happening? As Catherine looks behind her, the race director grabs her shoulder and screams, get the heck out of my race and give me those numbers. He then proceeds to swipe at her bib to take them off. Um, but she kind of gets away. And then her boyfriend, Tom, as we said, ex-All-American football player, He's practicing to throw the, the hammer throw in the Olympics, tackles the race director, and just throws him to the pavement. He throws the hammer down. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well put. Interesting. <laughs> um, so he throws him to the ground, and then they just book it, and they're like, we got to get out of here. Um, by this time, all the moods have changed the press catches back up with her and now they start questioning her like, Oh, are you, what are you trying to do? Like, are you trying to prove a point? Why are you out here running? Um, Catherine's still trying to be nice. Gets a little bit more defensive and is like, no, like I just want to run blah, 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 blah. And then they, t- they take off. Um, and then she's, nothing happens for her the rest of the race. So she's on adrenaline at mile four and then she has to go on and finish 22 other miles, <laughs> which, would be, which would be hard and would be awful because you hit later in that race and you've drained a ton of energy at that point. Yeah. Because they always say, um, what is it? There's that, breaker hill or whatever in boston i think they call it heartbreak hill heartbreak hill yes thank you that's that's the correct one heartbreak hill um but luckily as she continues to run she doesn't really notice heartbreak hill probably because her mind's racing on other things um as she as she continues to finish she ends up finishing the race in four hours and 20 minutes and as she finished what kind of a pace is that? What kind of times? <laughs> what kind of times? Oh, gosh. What kind of times you're running? Um, that's a good question. No, no, no. Come on. We'll figure it out. 
Let's do a calculation here. Calculation time. So four hours, that's 240 minutes. Plus 20 minutes, that's 260 minutes. Now since I can look this. 0.2. Uh, 9.9 minutes per mile. Just under 10 minute pace. So, yeah, just under 10 minute pace. Pretty good for a marathon, you know? Marathons are long. Very long. It's not that's, bad. That's really good. improves. Yeah, she does improve. But the funny thing about that is that, so I didn't mention this, but after that whole fiasco happens, they're running and her boyfriend gets upset because he's like, oh, I'm going to get be kicked out of the BAA. I'm not going to be able to throw out the Olympics. And he's upset and he says, and you're running slow anyway. And so he takes off. And then at mile 15 or 16, they catch back up and he's walking. <laughs> and he's like, don't leave me. I wouldn't leave you. And she's like, I'm going too slow and my momentum's carrying me. So sorry, bro. And she, she takes off. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's such a moron. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that guy. <laughs> oh man. That's pretty funny. So yes, for a marathon, that's, that's a, that's a decent pace. Um, Certainly respectable at the time. Yeah. And for, for an average runner and for, you know, someone that was just a starting to, to tackle the marathon, um, really good time. And so, like I said, she finishes the press comes back up she's like, do you want popularity? Like, why are you trying to race this? What are you trying to prove a point? And she's like, no, I just like, I love to run. I wanted to run and come on. It's Boston. Like who wouldn't want to run the Boston marathon? And so after that's me, (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to run the Boston marathon. I don't want to run the Boston marathon. I don't want to run any marathon. There you go. (laughs) Boring. Seriously, that's so boring. So far. And we have been running for a long time, the three of us, all of us. you run, the sooner you're done. <laughs> <laughs> good good point. <laughs> um, if so, you could do it in less than two hours, would you do it? If I could do it in less than two okay. hours, I'd be an Olympian and... I'd actually be the fastest marathoner in the world. So yeah, I would. Okay, just checking. I'd be I'd be all about the endorsements though. That's what I would be doing. So why are you running? I have no passion, but I do have thick pockets that need filling. Exactly. I'm a man of fine taste. Oh my gosh. Oh jeez. Okay. Anyway, to get back on track, she finishes the race and after she after Boston, she becomes a huge leader and advocate for promoting women to run the longer distances. So in 1972, Boston finally accepts women into the field of running, but they require that they run three hours and 30 minutes to be able to get into the Boston Marathon. Sheesh, that's a high standard considering that's a 50-minute improvement. That's like faster. <laughs> Then that's really, that's really pretty fast. Yeah, and that's quick. And so she. So I bet she never runs it again, huh? Oh, little do you know that she <laughs> runs it four more times. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me she got fast? Yes, she did improve, um, probably because of the love of running that she has. So her and I think there's eight eight women enter 
that 1972 Boston Marathon. Um, and the winner was Nina, I don't even know how to say her last name, Kushik, and she ran three hours and ten minutes. Trailblazing that is pretty fast. Pretty, pretty fast. Are you training for a marathon? Oh, am I? It is 28 days away now. Tyler, how far have you run? <laughs> My furthest run was 13 miles. Very nice. Very nice. That's pretty far. I oh. I attempted a 10-mile run the other day, and it killed me. <laughs> Wait, how far was it? 10. Oh, yeah. So... It looks like Catherine Schweitzer's fastest time was two hours and 51 minutes. And that was in 1975. Well, hot dang. What an improvement. She's fast. And at the time, it ranked her the third fastest American woman and the sixth fastest woman in the world. Nice. It's got to be pretty fun to be like, yeah, I ran the same distance, but it took me an hour and a half less than the first time I did it. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. And in just a couple of years, and she was able to to get her time down pretty pretty quickly, um, which is amazing. And so, like I said, with her running, she also promoted running for women. In 1981, they finally add the women's marathon to the Olympics. As far as the time frames go, that's pretty quick. I mean, 1967, you have a guy trying to chase the only woman off the course to 14 years later, it's an Olympic event. So that's not too bad. Yeah. But and it did take time. It, it, it took time. And it also helped that with Schweitzer promoting running, all of these women started to run faster and faster times. Um, and that's what eventually got the marathon into the Olympics. Um, And that takes us all the way to 2004. So fairly recently, the that's when in Boston, it finally switched that the elite women would start 30 minutes ahead of the men in Boston. And Schweitzer is commented to say that we'd moved from exclusion to exclusivity. Wow. Our first athlete. Yep. So (laughs) first athlete we do on finest hours is a woman. I would say, you know, besides the Boston marathon in uh, 1966 or 67, um, she had, or not her, but she helped promote a lot of women. And I could, you could say that their finest hour is, Schweitzer's finest hours as well. It just adds on to her legacy of of promoting women and helping them become part of the running community. All right. I think that's going to do it for us on today's episode. Uh, Our international listeners who I mentioned earlier, we really want to hear from you and we want to hear stories of people in your neck of the woods. So reach out to us on our podcast finest hours podcast or send us an email finest hours pod at gmail.com and uh, let us know who inspires you and Skylar, why don't you why don't you close us out here so thank you guys for joining us on our special edition of finest hours wonder women amazing women of history we hope you guys enjoyed the three stories that we shared please give us a, a follow on spotify 
and also on Apple Podcast. Give us a five-star rating. We would appreciate that. And even tell us what you thought about the podcast and all the other podcasts that you listen to. Give us a follow on our Instagram, Finest Hours Podcast. And if you have any questions or want us to do um, a particular person in our upcoming episodes, email us at finesthourspod at gmail.com and we will look into it and we yep. will we want to hear from you. So, all right, folks, we'll come back in a couple of weeks with another story. Bonne journée tout le monde. Adios. <laughs> Thank you.